Welcome to Talking Research. I am Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. Today I spoke to Bianca Philibon. Bianca is a lecturer in criminology at the University of Melbourne and her work is broadly concerned with looking at the intersections of identity, space, place, culture and experiences of violence and she's focused on sexual violence and harassment. In this conversation we spoke about her research on music festivals in Australia and the sexual harassment there and justice what can justice look like for victim survivors of sexual violence and and in the end we spoke about me too because bianca has co-edited a book of academic articles on me too with rachel loney howes who was a guest in one of the previous episodes so you can check that conversation out we're speaking about me too and bianca and i discussed the recent Harvey Weinstein verdict where he's been sent- sentenced to 23 years in prison all that and more in this conversation but before we dive in i just want to say that bianca used this word mosh pit and i know that my mom is listening and i don't think she knows what mosh pit means so sorry if you already know but it's basically a space in a concert or a gig where people gather in a formation near the stage and dance and bang their heads and uh yeah i i don't know how else to describe it but sorry for explaining that if you already knew it but i just wanted to be sure i didn't want you to think that it's some weird technical term it's some complicated technical term that you don't know about so yeah we good let's dive in So joining me from across the world today is Bianca Philippon. Hi Bianca, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks, Asmira. How are you? I'm good too. I'm good. It's a great start to the day. So tell me about yourself and about your research. Uh, super interesting research. Thank you. Um yeah, so I'm a lecturer in criminology at the University of Melbourne in Australia. Um and I do research mostly on sexual violence uh and I'm I'm particularly interested in looking at forms of sexual violence that are often I guess marginalized or hidden or like sit outside of our dominant understandings of what sexual violence is um so for example I've looked at um behaviors like unwanted sexual attention and um public uh harassment um I'm also really interested in how things like um people's identity um as well as space and place um might shape uh how sexual violence happens but also people how people understand and and make sense of their experiences Um so for example I'll look at the intersections of things like gender, sexuality, race and um disability. Um and I've looked at locations like um music festivals uh in Australia and um yeah public spaces and also licensed venues so like um bars and and clubs and pubs. Um so I'm really interested in how 
sexual violence unfolds within those spaces and how different um, people experience and, and interpret violence. So how did you get into this research? I mean, it's all super interesting, but it's not something that you hear about every day, is it? No, that's right. So I think for me, my interest in this research, unfortunately, really came from my own personal experiences of different types of sexual harassment. So, for example, the work that I did in licensed venues, which was actually my PhD research um, quite a few years ago now. Mm. But that really started because, you know, I was an undergraduate student. I was in my early 20s um, and I was going out quite regularly as you do. And I just felt like almost every time I went out for a drink with, with friends, you know, there was something that happened. And it wasn't always what we might think of as really you know, serious forms of, of violence, but um, you know, the, they were still harassing and, and unwanted encounters um, nonetheless. And I never really felt like I could do anything about it, right, because they were such, you know, seemingly small or, or minor things that I didn't think anyone would care if I, um, if I reported them to the venue staff. Um, and around the same time in Melbourne, we actually had a lot of attention being paid to physical violence around licensed venues and particularly young men getting really intoxicated and, you know, beating each other up on, on the streets, uh, which is obviously an important issue. Um, but at the same time, there was no discussion of the things that I was experiencing when I was going out. And I started talking to my friends about it and really realized that I didn't know any women uh, and also LGBT people who weren't experiencing this type of behavior when they were going out. Um, so that, I think, really inspired me to want to um, put the issue on the map, I guess, and to try and get um, an evidence base and to draw attention to the issue. Wow. I mean, I can so relate to what you're saying because I'm from India originally and I studied in Scotland and I, when I moved to uh, Edinburgh, I was so surprised at how safe the city is. I mean, it's like a bubble. You can just walk at any point any time and you won't be harassed on the streets which is very different from from where I'm from but what I found was uh, when you went into a club or in a bar especially in a club something just changed and everyone was getting groped and uh, I didn't know a single girl who hadn't been groped in a club and it was so normal you know and, and I found it so weird I mean I found it so strange that we just accept that it was normal in these spaces and I, what I heard from everyone was that you know this just happens in these spaces there's no way of controlling it so it's really reassuring to hear that uh, that you know you were actually looking at this and you wanted to change it. Absolutely and I think um, as well you know that was such a common uh, comment that I heard from my own participants that it was just such a normal part of going out like it was just expected particularly you know because people do go out to these um you know bars mm. and clubs because maybe they want to hook up for the night or you know meet a potential romantic partner which is is fine but there was this assumption that you know this unwanted um attention was just the price that you pay for being in these spaces and perhaps wanting to engage in some form of consensual sexual interaction, like that was really just used to normalize and excuse and, and downplay these encounters, even though um, they were quite often quite harmful um, and really 
impacted quite negatively on on women and, and LGBT people. Tell us about this research. How did you, I mean, was it a quantitative study or was it a qualitative study? This one looking at music festivals and what did you find? Yeah, so the research looking at music festivals uh, was a mixed methods study. So we did this back in 2017 and 2018 in New South Wales um, in Australia. Um, And it was just based at one festival site. So we have a festival here called the Falls Festival which is a, a camping festival that runs over a few days across the uh, New Year's Eve um, kind of period. Um, and it's quite a large festival in Australia, so it's about 25,000 people. I know that's really small compared to some of the festivals that you have in um, the UK and you know festivals like Coachella in, in the US, but in, in Australia, um, that's, that's quite a large um, or one of the largest um, festivals that we have. Um, and so we, we worked with this festival. We went to one of their sites in Byron Bay um, in New South Wales and we did some on-site observations there to get a sense of you know, what the space is like, how do people behave, um, you know, what are the levels of drug and alcohol consumption, um, all of that kind of stuff. So we knew that we had a really good sense of um, what the festival space was like. Um, and then we also did a survey with um, 500 patrons who went to the, the festival that we did our observations at. Um, so that was run after the festival had, had ended. Um, and we were really looking quite generally just at people's perceptions of um, safety and well-being uh, in the festival space. Um, and it was about their general experiences at, at festivals across the country. So you know, how safe do you usually feel? Um, what sort of things impact on whether or not you feel safe when you're at a festival? Um, you know, do you think that um, sexual violence, um, physical violence, homophobic and, and transphobic violence, um, are those things issues at festivals? Uh, and if they are, who are they impacting? Um, and we also asked some questions around bystander uh, intervention. So, you know, how confident would you feel intervening in a whole range of, of different um, situations at festivals where sexual violence might be occurring or is perhaps at, at risk of occurring? Um, and then we also did some interviews with victim survivors. So we spoke to 16 people who'd either had a first-hand experience of sexual violence or harassment uh, at a festival anywhere in Australia. And we also spoke to a couple of people who had been you know, working at a festival and had responsibility for um, responding to incidents. Mm. What did you find? I mean, what did, what did you hear from these responses? Yeah, so we found a few really key things. So I think for the survey, firstly, we found that most people actually usually feel pretty safe at festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, you know, I know in Australia, there's been a lot of uh, moral panic around music festivals particularly around drug use and and drug overdoses. Um, We're not quite as progressive as people are in in Europe, unfortunately. So there's been Mm. a a lot of debate around introducing um, pill testing and the, um, you know, the dominant response from our government has been the the kind of just just say no to drugs. You know, you shouldn't be taking them in the first place. Um, So there's been a lot of kind of broader concern, I guess, around safety and well-being at festivals. And actually what our findings were showing was that actually like most people who are going um, to these festivals are having a good time and they're generally feeling pretty safe. Um, And that that was also the case for people who'd experienced sexual harassment and violence as well. They were also telling us that 
still most of the time, they generally feel pretty safe in these spaces. Our survey participants definitely thought that sexual harassment and sexual violence were a problem at festivals um, and that they were most likely to be impacting on women, um, which is, I think, fairly unsurprising. Um, Mm. And bystander intervention was also quite interesting. So um, there were definitely some really gendered differences. So our female participants were much more likely to say that they would feel comfortable intervening and that they would intervene in a much wider range of situations. So in particular, they were much more likely to recognise the kind of lower level forms of harassment, like telling sexist or racist or transphobic jokes um, as constituting forms of violence and to say that they would intervene, um, whereas men were much more likely to say that they would step in if it was something um, a bit more obvious, you know, something that might meet more stereotypical understandings of, of sexual assault and, and rape. Um, so, yeah, that was all really interesting. And then from our interview participants who'd experienced um, sexual violence or harassment, I mean, firstly, almost everyone had had multiple experiences um, at festivals. And most of their, um, you know, friends had had similar experiences as well. So even though it's qualitative, it, and we can't, you know, make any assumptions about the prevalence rates from that, mm-hmm. it nonetheless suggested that it was likely to be um, an issue and, and something that, you know, was commonly occurring and repeatedly uh, occurring in festivals. Um, the, the physical environment of festivals was playing a really strong role in facilitating Um, different types of harassment. So, for example, if you think about the front of a a stage, like where the mosh pit kind of area is, it's super Mm -hmm. packed, crowded, you know, it's often quite physically aggressive. You're touching other people. Um, Mm. It's completely inevitable in that space. Um, But perpetrators could take advantage of that to, you know, get away with um, groping and, and touching people um in sexually inappropriate ways um without um often people couldn't see who had touched them because there's so many people um around you uh, it was really easy for perpetrators to just you know slip off into the crowd um or to deny what had happened or you know say oh it was just an accident you know someone pushed me and i accidentally touched you or or whatever so that kind of spatial arrangement was really providing a lot of cover um, for perpetrators. Um, I mean, the other issue with camping festivals is that you often have this massive camping area with everyone's tents that are you know, really chaotically um, laid out. It can be really difficult to find your way back to your tent. Um, and that was something mm. that was often taken advantage of. So, you know, we had um, one participant spoke about how she'd gone to have an early night so she went back to her tent by herself and like 10 minutes later some random guy came in um to her tent and was like oh sorry I thought this was my tent you know um I got Mm. confused uh, and then refused to leave until uh, one of her friends turned up and managed to kick him out so again we can see how people can really take advantage of um the layout uh, and the design of that space to get away with some quite problematic behavior Um, and then the other really key issue with festivals is that a lot of the time people are obviously drinking and perhaps taking um, other substances you know legal legally or otherwise Um, and again that's that's totally fine Um, 
if people are doing that in a in a safe way. Um, but we know that that drugs and alcohol can be used in facilitating um, sexual violence in a range of different ways. So whether that's perpetrators taking advantage of someone who's become really um, intoxicated um, through their own own means, you know, purposely getting people um, drunk or, or drug affected. Um, or just using it to downplay your own behavior. So, you know, a perpetrator mm-hmm. might say, sorry, I was off my face, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, so again, there's just a lot of features in that festival environment that can really help to excuse and, and normalize um, what perpetrators are doing. Um, the other mm-hmm. really key thing, um, so we asked our interview participants about uh, reporting. So did you tell anyone at the festival about what, what happened to you? Um, and of course, most people didn't report, and that's in line with with what we know about um, sexual violence more broadly. Um, one of the key reasons that some people were re- reluctant to report was that um, because of the really aggressive approach that's being taken to policing and regulating drugs at the moment, that people didn't necessarily feel like they could trust the police. Um, there was this real perception that Police were just at festivals to look for drugs. Um, they were really just concerned with getting drugs, uh, stopping drugs from getting through the gates in the first place. Uh, and they didn't really care what happened to people after that point. So, you know, the police wouldn't necessarily care if um, someone just felt me up in the mosh pit, right? Like that's not um, you know, serious enough um, for them to to deal with when they're looking for for drugs and you know very overt antisocial behavior, uh, and then of course the other issue is that if you've um, perhaps consumed um, some illicit drugs um, at at a festival, which a lot of people do, I think just under half of our sample were taking uh, or using illicit drugs regularly at, at festivals. Um, you might not want to go and report to police if you're concerned about also. Um, you know, being arrested for having some drugs on you or for being um, drug affected. Um, so that, you know, really harsh stance that we're taking in Australia at the moment around regulating and policing drugs was or seemed to really be acting as a quite a substantial barrier to people reporting other types of interpersonal harm. Um, so I think that's really, uh, really quite concerning. Um for the people who did report either to security or police, um, they often had quite negative experiences, which again aligns with past research on survivors' experiences reporting um, sexual violence to different authorities. Um, in some instances, there were behaviours that were really quite normal within a festival setting that were used to blame um, survivors for their own experience. So, for example, we had one participant who'd been um, top, walking around topless with um, nip, nipple pasties or nipple covers on, uh, which is really normal in a festival setting. Um, and not that it should matter anywhere how, how you're dressed, of course. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it is important to stress that, you know, this was a common type of dress within this setting. It wasn't unusual. Um, and she was sexually harassed by a security guard and she went and reported to another security guard and the response that she got was basically, well, look at what you're wearing, what, what did you expect um, to happen? Um, so again, that's really problematic where festivals are spaces where people do, you know, dress up or, or dress in ways that might be different to what we usually do um, if we're going to work or school or, or whatever. 
um, mm. you know, the spaces where we can kind of let our hair down and have some fun and act in perhaps um, quite transgressive ways. Uh, but then that those very same features of festivals were being used to to blame people um, for yeah. for very problematic behavior. Yeah, I mean it makes sense in terms of what we know about rape myths and uh, victims having to follow this script to appear as the perfect victim because questions such as what was she wearing or uh, was she drinking or was she doing drugs also it's her fault so you know that's why victims wouldn't come forward because you know why would you like it, it if if it's just going to make your life harder so, so it makes sense doesn't it in terms ties in with what we know so far and uh so what's interesting is that there's something about that festival space that that allows that allows sexual violence sexual harassment to to happen and um uh that allows perpetrators to get away with it so we can stop it from happening if festival venues take steps is that something that you would agree with yeah it's certainly something that we've re- recommended from our findings um of course you know changing the design of a festival isn't going to completely stop sexual violence um from happening mm. you know obviously the responsibility for that lies with with perpetrators and the choices that they're making but oh. but what it does suggest is that there might be things that we can change um about the festival environment whether it's the layout of space um you know having better lighting or particularly where um camping areas were having really clear signposting so you can find where your your tent was um just some of those small changes might help to um at the very least, make it harder for perpetrators to get away with some of these um, these actions. But it is really difficult, mm. and especially for something like the the stage area and, and the mosh pit area, um, that's also part of the attraction of going to festivals, right? Like people seek yeah. out that environment. And again, it's part of the kind of fun and the, the transgression um, of, of being at a, a festival space. So there's also a challenge in thinking about how can we you know, try and manage the environment and the space in a way that will um, perhaps contribute towards preventing um, sexual violence from happening or making it harder to happen without taking away from you know, the enjoyment um, that, mm-hmm. that festival spaces bring. Um, so I, we would certainly argue that those environmental measures can't be um, standalone responses they have to be working alongside um, other responses you know particularly mm. preventative responses and efforts to try and change um, the culture yeah. um, and norms of festivals um, you know efforts to try and encourage ethical uh, and consensual sexual interaction um, and encouraging bystander intervention as well mm. and also creating an environment where if someone comes forward and says uh, I've been, I've been harassed or I've been sexually assaulted. They're believed, even if, even if it's in that environment. You, if someone comes up to an official at the festival, they're not vilified and they're not um, doubted and they're, or they're treated more kindly and they're treated with more respect. I think making it easier for survivors to come forward. Absolutely. And, you know, certainly like we've recommended that all festival staff should have training on how to respond appropriately to disclosures, 
um, that there's really clear protocols in place for what you do if someone reports to you so you know where to take that person, um, you know, who has responsibility for supporting them. Um, that festivals, especially the larger camping um, or multi-day festivals, should really have um, crisis support or sexual assault counsellors on site or very ready access to that type of, of support. Um, and a, a lot of the uh, interview participants in our study really wanted to have um, volunteers that they could report to as opposed to security or police. Um, mm. Although some people wanted to report to the police, um, a lot of the time that's um, it's not always appropriate. It's not always the type of yeah. um, response or support that people want. Uh, it can be quite intimidating. Um, so having a kind of non-judgmental um, peer support person that you can go in and talk to in the first instance um, and particularly to get you in contact with some immediate um, crisis support um, to help you in thinking through what you want to do next. I think that's that's really essential. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like, I mean, those don't sound like big asks. They sound like really practical measures that anyone you can and should implement. Uh, I mean, when I was in, uh, in Edinburgh, there was this one place that did there's one club that did i think put posters up or something that uh this is not a space where we'll accept untoward behavior and they were obviously referring to sexual harassment and sexual violence in general and i mean i don't know how effective that is but that seems like a small start doesn't it to start talking about it as well but i don't mean to say that no one in edinburgh <laughs> gets uh faces sexual violence i mean obviously it's a very safe place but we what we know is that it happens in every society in the safest societies exactly. there's nowhere doesn't happen what I'm, what i was trying to say is that it seems more safe than other places that i've been to yeah absolutely and and i would agree i think you know having those forms of visible communication can be really powerful again it's not going to totally solve the issue of course um on its own but you know i think saying to people who are in at a festival or in a particular venue that you know, our staff have been trained, um, we'll take this seriously, we will believe you um, if you come and um, report anything to us, like regardless of how small it, it seems, um, we'll take it seriously and we will act on what you've told us. Uh, I think that's incredibly important. Um, and it's also about sending a message to potential perpetrators that actually we don't tolerate that behaviour here. If you engage in that behaviour here, you're not going to get away with it. We're not just going to turn a blind eye or say oh well what did you expect or you know he's had a few drinks don't worry about it um we'll take it seriously and there will actually be um, consequences and that person will be held to account for their behavior yeah and i mean it's interesting that you use the word space because uh, i'm also reading some of you on avira gray's work and you've worked with her on your research on street harassment and yes. uh, how it impacts women it sort of makes them leave that space i mean it leaves those spaces just for men um especially in 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 south asian countries i mean this has definitely been my experience you see public spaces and you see that who really hangs out in public spaces it's mostly men because women are made uncomfortable and they're made to leave and they're even in music festivals the ones you're talking about i don't imagine a lot of women like staying past the time that they think it's safe you know, these are things that we have to think about that men necessarily don't. 
Absolutely. Oh, I was just going to say, like, we had absolutely, like, so many people say, like, I don't go in the mosh pit anymore. Or, you know, even if women could, were still staying in or using those spaces, um, they were always on guard or hyper vigilant. You know, they had to constantly think about yeah. who, who's in my space. You know, what is that person doing? Are they getting too close? Um, did they just touch me on purpose, or was that accidental? So it's that kind of constant surveillance, hyper vigilance that just means you can never actually fully um, enjoy or immerse yourself in a particular um, space. And of course, we know, I mean, both in our research on um, music festivals, but also through the work I've done on street harassment, um, women and LGBT people do exclude themselves from a whole range of public and semi-public spaces or really restrict how they're using those spaces. And that has huge implications. You know, I think it's often dismissed as this really minor thing, but um you know, we need to access public space to um, go to work, to engage in education, to, you know, to get about in our, our daily lives and, and function. Um, and I think it's also about having uh, like the right to full civic um, participation in our society. And that's denied to you or it's denied to women um, partially um, and quite substantially through actions like street harassment. Um, so, yeah, I, I often think of it as um, being something that is both caused by um, gendered and other power imbalances, but it's also something that actively reproduces those power imbalances and actively you know, recreates public spaces as being men's um, spaces um, where women are just not fully um included um or they're not kind of full citizens within um public spaces yeah absolutely absolutely and i mean just reading about all of this research it's been so liberating for me to i mean it's been a bit sad as well just realizing how much work goes into actively keeping myself safe you know I, when i'm walking down the street i always look back to see if anyone's following me even if you know there's no threat but still the conditioning that i've had from years of existing on the street is that's a precaution that I need to take because what if someone comes and just um, you know jumps up on me then uh, you know I need to be vigilant in that case and this is what Liz Kelly called safety work right that um, this the amount of work that women put into keeping themselves safe so I want to segue into street harassment and uh, you've looked at street harassment the phenomenon on its own as well Tell us about that. I mean, what exactly is street harassment for for those who haven't thought about it much? And um, how would how would you define it in an academic context? And how do you study it? And uh, tell us about your research on that. Yeah, sure. So I guess firstly, what is street harassment? It's such a big question. Um, and there's different ways that you can answer it. Um, so mm -hmm. I guess firstly, in terms of the behaviours, like most typically we would think of it as things like um, catcalling, wolf whistling, you know, having someone honking their car horn at you, you're being followed in public spaces, having someone engage in unwanted um, conversation with you or un unwanted touching. Um, so it can really be like quite a, quite a range of things. Um, I always take a victim-centered perspective that would say, you know, if someone experienced that as a form of harassment or a form of intrusion, um, then 
that action is a form of harassment or, or intrusion. Um, and there's quite, quite diverse approaches that have been taken in academic research. So some researchers have used definitions that would also include things that, um, you know, would be sexual assault or, or rape um, under the criminal law. Um, certainly participants in my research also spoke about things that would constitute criminal offences as well as those more, uh, you know, quote-unquote trivial um, experiences. So these are things that typically happen in public or semi-public spaces. So, you know, on, on literally on the street or the sidewalk, um, when you're using public transport, in shopping centres, um, so all of those kind of, of public and semi-public spaces. Compared to other forms of sexual violence, their um, street harassment is commonly perpetrated by strangers, in fact, almost exclusively by strangers. And it's also important to recognise the way that it intersects with with different types of harassment and abuse. So I think typically street harassment is thought of as a form of of sexual and gender-based violence, which it absolutely is. Um, But certainly my own research and a lot of um, other studies that have been done also show how it intersects or co-occurs with things like racist abuse, transphobic and and homophobic violence, um, and, and so forth. So um, just as, as one example, and I'll, I'll try not to be too graphic for anyone who's um, listening at, at home and, and doesn't want to you know, hear really detailed um, uh, example, but um, for a lot of the people in same-sex relationships in my own research, um, they would often be targeted for um, homophobic abuse, um, especially if they were holding hands or kissing or you know, identifiably a, a couple in a public space. So they might be called, you know, lesbians or whatever, um, various homophobic slurs. But then there might also be um, demands to kiss or um, other sexualized comments like, oh, you just need a, a real man. So I think that kind of illustrates how the like, sexual harassment and sexual violence also occur as forms of, of homophobic violence. And you can't easily disentangle them um, in, in that type of, of scenario. So really important, I think, to to take an intersectional approach that recognises how people's experiences might differ and also the impacts of their experiences, how they might differ based on um, identity categories. So then I guess it, the, the next part of, of the what is street harassment relates a little bit more to what function um, does it serve? So, you know, not just well, what types of behaviours do we can, um, count as street harassment, but what is this behaviour actually doing? Um, and again, it's been understood in a whole range of, of different ways. Um, so as I've already hinted at, it can be understood as a form of sexual violence, particularly if we're using the um, continuum model of sexual violence that Liz Kelly developed through her really uh, important work in the 1980s. So we can understand street harassment, even if it seems very minor or very trivial um, mm-hmm. as as being a form of, of sexual violence that's underpinned by those same power relationships and that works to um, control you know women's um, sexuality and sexual expression that works to um, circumscribe w- women's o- autonomy and LGBT people's um, autonomy in public spaces as well so I think that's really 
uh, a really useful way of looking at it. Although, as I said, it also needs to be approached through um, an, an intersectional lens. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What you've said about how hard it is to define it and even because it's such a broad phenomenon and even from a legal perspective, there's that, there's that clash. I mean, how do you define it in such a way that it can be addressed legally, but also that means that not everything can be covered by a legal response to it. So, you know, if someone's if you're on public transport and someone's staring at you constantly and that's making you feel so unsafe, uh, as it often ha- happens, I mean, d- legally, that's not something you could seek redress for normally, would it? But, but it does. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's one of those ones where it's definitely extremely, extreme, that can be extremely traumatic, but in the eyes of the law, it would be like, how can you prove it and things like that the, the usual challenges that come up with our criminal system which is really not working when it comes to sexual violence so it's it's that challenge isn't it and um how do you balance that with encompassing the phenomenon as it is so you've surveyed about 300 participants in 2016 and these are individuals who experienced street harassment uh, so tell us about this you know, what did you find? Yeah, so yeah, this was a project that I did in Melbourne in Australia. Um, So I really wanted to find out, uh, firstly, what types of um, harassment people were experiencing and and how commonly were they um, encountering this issue in Melbourne. Um, I was particularly interested in looking at how street harassment was overlapping, again, with those other categories I guess of violence or an abuse so homophobic violence transphobic violence um, racism and and so forth Um, but I also wanted to know about uh, you know were people who experiencing who've experienced street harassment do they tell other people about it do they disclose do they commonly report um, to the police for example Uh, and then the final kind of part of the project was really interested in this idea of justice and what does justice mean in relation to street harassment? Um, so how do people who've experienced street harassment define justice? Um, how would they like street harassment to actually be responded to? So what would need to happen for them to feel as though um, justice has been achieved? Um, and I also asked some questions around whether people would be supportive of having criminal legislation introduced, because uh, that's certainly been an approach that it, we are seeing taken um, in many jurisdictions around the world now. So France have recently introduced, uh, I think, on on the spot fines. I know there's a debate happening in the UK at the moment around the need to introduce uh, specific legislation for street harassment. So. I wanted to know whether um, people who've experienced street harassment actually want that type of response. Um, and whether that actually meets their, um, you know, perspectives or understandings of what justice is. What what what, what did you find, and what what is, what what can be a justice response that is victim centric? How do we move towards that? Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's a big question. I think firstly, um, there was no single response or understanding of justice that was shared across everyone. So. You know, people who've experienced street harassment, like other victims, survivors of, of sexual violence and other crimes, 
are incredibly diverse and justice meant different things to them and they often wanted um, quite different responses. Um, and often the same participants could want quite different responses just depending on um, the context of the harassment and the impact that it had on them uh, and, and so forth. Um, but most typically, I think participants talked about things like um, so fairness, um, having a response that, that was fair and proportionate to the harm that had, had happened. Um, mm. There was um, talk about accountability, so ensuring that um, perpetrators were held accountable for their behaviours, that they um, received some type of consequence. And that didn't necessarily mean a, like a really punitive response. Um, you know, it could be things like having to engage in education or the perpetrator mm. coming to an understanding of why what they did was was wrong um, and, and problematic. Um, the other really key thing that came through was um, this idea of, of transformation. Um, so a lot of participants really felt that street harassment is something that is incredibly difficult to respond to after the fact. So if we look at something like um, introducing legislation, although a lot of people were in principle um, supported the introduction of some type of specific uh, legis legislation dealing with street harassment, they were also quite conflicted. So people really valued it because it was symbolic like it said something about mm. um you know we as a society um don't condone or tolerate or accept this behavior you know this legislation is a way of expressing its its wrongness and its harm um and giving people who are experiencing harassment something tangible to kind of hold on to and say look you know this this is why what you're doing is is wrong right like this is something that we have a kind of a collective um, a agreement on um, mm. or, you know, a, a statement with a, the authority and power that comes with, you know, state legislation, criminal legislation that says this is not okay. Yeah. So people really liked it or liked the idea of legislation for that reason. But there were also a lot of complexities. So firstly, just on a really practical level, incidents of street harassment are incredibly difficult to actually respond to they're often really fleeting so you know if someone drives past in their car and yells something at you and or honks their horn and you know you kind of see what color the car was didn't see what the perpetrators yeah. looked like didn't get their license plate like what do you actually do with that like sure you could go and report it to the police but there's nothing tangible that they can actually do um in in that circumstance mm -hmm. so you know Maybe not for all types of harassment. There might be certain cases where you can gather that type of evidence that's needed in a criminal justice response. Um, but certainly for a, a lot of um, types of harassment, it, it just wasn't possible um, to, to gather um, evidence. Or they were behaviours that were so ambiguous. Like I think that example of staring before is a really good one um, or unwanted conversation would be another one where these are behaviours that are often really normal. Like we're, I'm sure we've all stared at someone on public transport, maybe because we liked mm. what they were wearing or, you know, whatever, um, without intending to harass them or make them feel uncomfortable. Um, but, of course, something like staring or, or, you know, unwanted conversation can 
absolutely be used as a form of harassment, but it can be very difficult to articulate what it is about that experience that was was problematic. Um, and again, obviously, incredibly difficult to um, prove that someone was intentionally engaging in that behaviour, um, or you know what what would the the um, consequences of legislation around staring be like no one could ever look at each other in public space again like it's not um it's just not practical to to regulate some behaviors in that way um Mm. so those were all challenges Uh, another thing was that um often street harassment is harmful I mean, obviously, individual incidents can be incredibly harmful, but part of the harm of street harassment was that it's something that's repeated again and again and again. So it's all these kind of small encounters or small experiences that add up over time. Um, So there's a cumulative harm. uh, And that, again, makes it really difficult to respond to through the criminal justice system, which is really about responding to individual perpetrators and, and individual incidents or, or acts. So it's not yeah. necessarily good at dealing with, um, you know, potentially hundreds of, of perpetrators that have on their own done, possibly done quite, you know, minor um, things, um, but that add up over time to really have quite a significant negative impact or, or harm um, on someone. Uh, And then the final really key thing with legislation is that there was a lot of concern about what the um, follow-on effects would be for marginalised groups of men. So we know that these types of um, public order um, um, policing and and legislation are used disproportionately on men of colour in Australia. They're used in the over-policing of Indigenous um, groups. Um, you know, you know, people with mental illness, um, uh, people who are, are homeless, they're all groups who are incredibly marginalised um, and oppressed in other ways um, and their oppression is often both caused by and perpetuated through the criminal yeah. justice system. And it's very easy, I think, to see how introducing this type of legislation would be yeah. um, used in a way that, that continues those very disproportionate and, and quite significant harms. Um, you know, let's face it, it's probably not the the middle class white man in a suit harassing someone who's going to be apprehended or, or dealt with through these types of responses. Um, so there was a lot of resistance to introducing legislation precisely because it would um, amplify other types of, of inequality and harm. So yeah. because of all of those reasons, what participants actually wanted was a, a transformative approach that was really about, I mean, I, I guess it's really about preventing um, street harassment from occurring in the first place. And it was about actually um, fundamentally changing the the systems of power and the structures that allow street harassment to happen in the first place. So, you know, it was about transforming our um, gender relations and, and gendered power. Um, it was about dismantling um, your patriarchy and, um, you know, racist, ableist, um, you know, heteronormative social structures. Um, it was about transforming how we actually engage in um, sexual interaction and, and sexual courtship uh, because a lot of 
this behavior is often just dismissed as being, you know, complimentary or they were just trying to flirt with you or whatever, Um, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I would very strongly contest most of the time anyway. But, um, you know, there was the idea that, okay, well, if if that passes as flirting or or courtship, we need to fundamentally rethink how we're engaging um, sexually with one another um, so that that interaction is fundamentally coming from a place of of ethics and and respect um yeah yeah, so that that was kind of the idea um underpinning what what people wanted Um, and of course that's not a small ask right we're we're basically Mm. asking for radical social and cultural and structural change but it it does point to the bigger picture issues that we really need to be um, looking at and that are going to have um, positive effects in terms of reducing a whole range of, you know, manifestations of violence and um, and oppression. Personally, I think it is going to take that massive cultural shift for us to make a society safer for women because it's not working as it is and uh, it's it's letting us down in so many ways. So what I like to focus on is one thing that the listener can take away uh, in what they can do in tackling the problem so what do you have to say for those listening especially men who want to do their bit to help end street harassment Mm. so I think particularly for men speak out against it you know talk to your friends talk to your male friends about this and let them know that you don't think it's okay Um, if you're with them when they're engaging in this behavior call them out you know and there are lots of different ways of doing that. It doesn't have to be really confrontational. It could be making a joke or, you know, even just a, a small remark of, hey, maybe, you know, leave her alone or whatever you feel comfortable doing in the moment, really. But, you know, um, I think taking those steps to communicate to to other men that actually this this isn't on, this isn't how we um you know, should be treating other people, um yeah. is really, really important. Um, I think the other really key takeaway thing for everyone is to understand that street harassment isn't trivial or minor, um, that it's mm-hmm. actually something that really has very significant um, negative impacts on the lives of, of women and LGBT people. Um, so don't dismiss it as something mm-hmm. that's, you know, just a joke or, or a compliment. There's a lot of online activism now. So we've got groups like Hollaback, for example, that really collate mm. a lot of these experiences. I'd encourage everyone to take the time and, and actually read through the sorts of things that, that people are facing, you know, often on a daily basis and read about the impacts that it's having on, on people's lives. And I guess, you know, the other tangible thing that people can do is learning about bystander intervention and effective ways of intervening um, as a bystander in the moment. Um, And again, there's a whole range of different ways that you can do that. It's not always about being confrontational or, you know, directly um, confronting the perpetrator. In fact, that can be a really dangerous thing to do. Um, But there's lots of other, other strategies that you can use to let someone know that you've seen what's happened, that you're not okay with it, and that you're there um, to support them. Um, and again, so much information about that online. 
again, groups like Holaback have really great resources on how to to be a, a good and effective bystander. So I'd encourage everyone to check those out. Yeah, I'll put those in the in the episode description. But really, just listening to your female and LGBTQ friends and uh, paying attention to their experiences and taking them seriously. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that's really useful advice. Thank you. What is it like doing this research and hearing these stories on a day-to-day basis and then trying to look for solutions and realizing that it's going to take a lot of work? Is it emotionally draining? Oh, definitely. Um, Yeah, it can definitely be really challenging. Um, You know, I think to a certain extent, you do become used to hearing these really negative experiences. I think we do become a little bit, not immune, but... um, you know, you, you just get used to it, I think is the best way to, to explain it. And that's not to say that they don't impact you, but you, I guess, just mm-hmm. come to realise how depressingly normal and common these types of experiences are. Um, mm-hmm. And that can be really hard. Uh, I think it really varies. Like, for the most part, I, you know, hearing, especially having people share their stories with me, is such an honour to have someone trust you with such a deeply personal and often really traumatic um, experiences. So I think I feel really an immense sense of responsibility to keep doing this work and to you know, make sure that people's voices and experiences are heard and to try and amplify what, what people mm-hmm. have told me. Um, you know, I think as, as academic researchers, um, we are in an, an immense position of privilege. Um, we do have access to you know, channels of of influence that other people might not. Um, There is a level of authority, but whether that's deserved or not, that comes with what we have to say. So I think we have to take that incredibly seriously. And, you know, I do do see it as a a duty that I have to my participants, but also to survivors um, to be doing what I can um, to try and and change um, and to try and... (laughs) advocate for changes that are going to work towards prevention and a a better world um, for all of us. Um, So I think that energizes me. But at the same time, you have days where it's just it feels so overwhelming and and frustrating and depressing where it's like, oh, you know, you'll, you'll see someone make comments that are just makes you feel like we're back to square one, you know, like have we had any social or cultural progress at all? Um, and that's just in really infuriating. Um, mm. So it can be really difficult. But, yeah, I do just try and focus on the fact that we're, you know, working together to try and generate um, really positive change. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much, so much happening in terms of how many more new voices of women and LGBT people are emerging who are speaking out against this and were being heard as well? I mean, Harvey Weinstein was sentenced for 23 years yesterday and you've written a book, this fantastic, not, not a book, well, compiled a book of articles on Me Too, this fantastic yes, academic publication, <laughs> which I would highly recommend. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm reading that at the moment and it's really great. Uh, uh, we had the chance to speak to Rachel Loney Howes, the co-author on the podcast as well, on a really, really interesting conversation. Uh, so what do you think of the verdict? Is that, is that, uh, does that make you happy? And what are your thoughts on it? 
yeah, again, I'm really conflicted about it. So on the one hand, yes, I think it's fantastic that he's been held to account. Um, you know, he is obviously someone who was in an incredibly powerful position was able to use that for years to um, facilitate and get away with his offending and to actively intimidate his survivors from, you know, seeking, um, seeking justice. Um, so in that respect, I think it's absolutely fantastic um, that he is being held to account for what he's done. On the other hand, I'm, you know, I, I have reservations, I guess, in that Firstly, it took um, almost 100 women and a global anti-sexual violence movement to bring down this one powerful man. So, you know, I'm not sure that it gives me a lot of hope in terms of what the implications will be for other survivors who are coming forward and um, trying to seek justice, um, particularly against um, perpetrators in positions of power. Um, The other reason it, not that it's a concern, I guess, but I think we just need to be wary of um, is that there's a tendency to um, overemphasize the importance of having um, dealt with one perpetrator, that it kind of treats a, a sexual violence as an issue of these individual deviant men, and we just need to deal with those individual men, and you know the problem will be solved. Um, whereas, you know, we, we know that sexual violence is a, a deeply embedded social, cultural and, and structural um, issue. So uh, I guess it's a concern that placing too much emphasis on one conviction might draw our attention away from the kind of longer term um, and harder ongoing work that, that needs to be done. And then I guess the, the final issue is just that uh, again, the, the role of the criminal justice system in reproducing those systems of, of power and inequality around things like race and, and class in particular. Mm. So Harvey Weinstein is obviously not the sort of person who typically goes to jail for their, their mm. actions. And yeah, again, like my concern is just that if this is used to kind of bolster carceral responses to sexual violence and, you know, to reaffirm the idea that putting perpetrators in jail is the answer to all of our solutions, um, that is going to really disproportionately impact marginalised men again and and reproduce other um, systems of power that are intertwined, you know, with with gender Mm. and sexual violence um, as well. So, yeah, just I guess I'm just a little bit cautious um, about yeah. that and yeah like I said just very mixed uh, mixed feelings there's no easy answers are there I mean no definitely um, not <laughs> even even what seems like a victory you have to be careful and be like oh what is the implication of this and that's the yeah. problem with being an academic right we just have to make everything so difficult <laughs> we can't just enjoy yeah. things <laughs> yeah it's a- seems like a trade hazard but um thank you so much i mean you're making a lot of things easier as well you're making it so much easier for so many people to speak out so many women so many lgbtq people to raise their voices and talk about their experiences because we have your work to fall back on so thank you for your powerful work and thank you for speaking to me today thank you uh thank you so much it's my pleasure thank you Thank you so much for listening. That was the amazing Bianca Philibon. Let me know what you thought of this conversation. Show her some love. You know, all the guests are superb and their work is superb. And if you're listening and if you enjoyed the conversation or even you 
if you thought that what they're doing is good and i can do something better in talking to them let tell me what you thought of this episode and i'll pass on the compliments so you can send me an email or tweet or message me on facebook we're also on instagram now oh my god i'm so excited i'm going to be posting some visually related content to the podcast which i'm still trying to make because i'm not great at it but i'll get there it's at talking research and all the links to all social media platforms are in the podcast description as are links to organizations that support victim survivors if you need those those are already there and stay safe we can all fight this pandemic together we can all work together we're in this together and i'm going to be posting these episodes every wednesday and we've got an amazing lineup for the next few episodes so see you then i am asmita and this is talking research <laughs>